Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We call it Bible Crossfire because we allow an interchange here. We exchange of beliefs, uh, views. Uh, the question is, on anything that we're discussing, is what does the Bible teach on that? So on this program, we strive to tell you what the Bible says, not what we think, won't, or what what is politically correct, uh, what will bring in the most people. You know, everybody says that, but how can you explain why a lot of churches, I think about 75% of the churches across North America, allow women preachers? When the Bible says clearly it's a shame for women to speak in the church, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. So it's not true that everybody's going by the Bible. Most people are going by what's politically correct. They tell you they're going by the Bible, but they ignore the verses in the Bible that contradict what they want to practice and what they believe. I mean, look, probably about 50% of the congregations across America allow gay marriage, and the Bible is clearly teaches that's a sin, Old Testament, New Testament. So not everybody's really trying to go by the Bible. Don't think that. And guess what? The church you attend may not be trying to go by the Bible. Now, they're going to say that, but they're going to ignore or contradict a lot of verses in the Bible if it contradicts what's politically correct, what they like, what they think is best, what will bring in the most people. You're kidding yourself if you don't think that. Now, <clears throat> last week we started a discussion of <clears throat> some things that we learned from the Old Testament prophets. And here's a good one. In Ezekiel 18, <clears throat> 20 through 24. Ezekiel 18, 20 says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now, if you're part of a Catholic church or any church that's been influenced by the Catholic church or any church that's been influenced by Calvinism, you're going to, the church you're a member of is going to teach that babies are born in sin. Guilty of sin. You think, well, my church goes by the Bible. Well, do they? If they teach babies are born guilty of sin, what about this verse? It says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. So I did not inherit sin from my dad, Kenneth. Seth didn't inherit sin from his dad, Adam. Seth, we all probably all came from Seth. How can it be true that babies inherit sin? When this verse, it's like God knew that people were going to teach that eventually. So he put a verse in here to make sure that people would know that babies are not born guilty of sin. It's right there in Ezekiel 18, 20. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So if you do something righteous, I'm not going to get credit for that. You are. And if I do something wicked, you're not going to be charged with that. So why would anybody think that if Adam, Adam does something wicked, somebody else who's completely innocent is going to be charged with that when it says the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him? You see, we have clear Bible verses teaching there's nothing to this Calvinistic theory that babies are born in sin, but people teach it anyway <laughs> because they're not really so much concerned about what the Bible actually says. The next verse says... But verse 21, but if the wicked will turn from all his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions that he hath committed, they shall not be mentioned unto him. 
in his righteousness that he hath done, he shall live. Uh, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Now, when we were talking about this last week, we showed Hebrews 7, 12, that there's been a change in the law. We're not under the Old Testament law. So the people that this was written about, they were under a different law than us. They were amenable, responsible to obey the law of Moses. The Old Testament law, Genesis to Malachi. We're under the law of Christ. Moses was their leader. Christ is our leader. We're responsible to obey the New Testament law. But look, they are under different law than us. But you see, the same thing was true about repentance here. If you have the wicked, he can be forgiven if he turns from all his sins. If all his sins that he's committed, they'll not be mentioned to him if they turn from. I mean, Jesus said the same thing. He said, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, so I run into people all the time, people that call this program and who I have studies with later. They act like they said, well, we're under grace. We don't have to repent of our sins. We can continue to live in sin <laughs> and still be forgiven of them. That flatly contradicts passages like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, the blood of Christ washes away our sins, but he only washes away our sins if we repent of them. Isn't that exactly what Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23 is saying? And, and how about Proverbs 28, verse 13? Proverbs 28, 13 says, and again, this is Old Testament. He that covereth his sin shall, shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. The only person that's going to have mercy from God is the one that forsakes his sins. Now, when he forsakes them, God will uh, have mercy on him because of the death of Christ, the blood of Christ. So yes, the blood of Christ is for the remission of our sins, but it only remits the sins of the people who repent of their sins. Isn't that is what Ezekiel eighteen twenty one says? If the if the wicked, there's one of those if statements again that we were talking about several weeks ago. If the wicked will turn from all his sins he hath committed, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. What's the implication? The necessary implication that if the wicked does do not turn from their sins, they will not live. They will die spiritually. Don't think okay. Jesus died for my sins, so I'm forgiven. I don't have to turn from him. No, you do. Don't think, oh, I'm a Christian, so I can live in sin. Once saved, always saved, and still be saved because I became a Christian. Because we're under grace. No, certainly we're under grace. Grace provides the forgiveness, and the forgiveness of sins is only applied to those who forsake their sins. Proverbs 28, 13, Ezekiel 18, 21 through 23. I mean, it's in plain black and white. But guess what? Probably 90% of the people who claim to be believers in Christ out there, they refuse to believe a passage like this. They just can't believe that it would be true that you have to repent of your sins to be forgiven of them. But they said, where, where, where's grace come in? Grace comes in when you repent. That's pretty simple. It's in black and white. It's very simple. There's nothing complicated by that, about that passage. A sixth grader could understand it, but most believers claim, people who claim to be believers in Christ, they just don't believe it. Why? Because they want to live any other way they want to and still be saved. Wishful thinking is what we call that. And then verse 24 of Ezekiel 18 says, says, but when the righteous turneth away from his righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he hath done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. 
we mentioned briefly a while ago the once saved, always saved doctrine. Well, this is an Old Testament passage, but it proves conclusively and in very simple terms that's absolutely false. I mean, how can you get around this verse? Why would you want to try to get around it? <laughs> Why would you want to try to get around anything God says? Here's a righteous man, verse 24 of Ezekiel 18. If he's righteous, that must mean he's been forgiven and he's living a righteous lifestyle because nobody lives perfectly. So nobody's righteous without forgiveness. So this man's been forgiven, okay? He's living a righteous lifestyle. He's parallel to what we call a Christian today. But he says if he turns from that righteousness and starts living according to all the abominations of the wicked, is he going to live or die? And he's talking about spiritual life or spiritual death. He says he'll die. <laughs> I can't think of a passage that's more clear than that. Here's a man that's saved in the Old Testament times, but he leaves God. He quits living the righteous lifestyle, starts living a wicked lifestyle. He loses his salvation. That's what it says. He's a righteous man. He turns from how he's living. His righteous lifestyle starts living in a, a wicked lifestyle. And the question is raised, is he going to live or die? And the clear answer is he's going to die. He was saved at one time. He was forgiven. He was living a righteous lifestyle. Now he's living in spiritual death because he turned away from his righteousness. He turned away from God. He started living a wicked lifestyle. It's plain and simple. But as I said, people don't want to believe this. They want to believe once saved, always saved because of wishful thinking. They want it to be true so bad that they can live the way they want to live instead of the way the Savior tells them to live. They want to live the way they want to live and still think of themselves as being saved. So they'll believe this lie, once saved, always saved. Not because the Bible ever says anything like that, but because that's what they want the truth to be. If you have a Bible question or comment, please call us at 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. If you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. Here's another thing that we can read from one of the Old Testament prophets. I'm reading from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. You know what this is saying? This is a prophecy about something in the future that's going to happen. It says, one likened to the Son of Man, that's Jesus Christ, obviously. He's going to come to the Ancient of Days, and he's going to be given a kingdom. Notice that he's going to be given a kingdom when he comes to the Ancient of Days, not when he leaves the Ancient of Days, who would obviously be God the Father. You see, the premillennialist, which makes up probably a great majority of the churches in the United States, the premillennialists say that Jesus is going to be given a kingdom when he comes to this earth, you know, at the second coming of Christ. That would be when he's leaving the ancient of days, leaving the Father, that he'll be given a kingdom. But this passage prophesies, no, the exact opposite of that. He's been going to be given the kingdom when he comes to the Father. So he was given the kingdom, not when he's coming the second coming of Christ, but when he ascended up to heaven, he was died, he was resurrected. Several days later, he was ascended up to heaven. He came to the ancient of days. And this prophecy says that's when he'll be given a kingdom. 
So the kingdom has been in existence and Jesus has been king of this kingdom ever since Jesus ascended up to heaven and sat on the right hand of God. Well, that's what the right hand of God means. He's second in command. He's over the kingdom. And this passage says it's going to happen when he ascends to go to the ancient of days, God the Father. So that happened about 2,000 years ago, and he's been king of the kingdom ever since. Instead of he's going to get a kingdom when he comes back, when he goes to the ancient of days, he'll be given a kingdom. That's the ascension of Christ 2,000 years ago. Not when he leaves the ancient of days, the heavenly Father, and comes here at the second coming of Christ. The pre-millennialists have it backwards. We see confirmation of that by many passages, dozens of passages. Here's one. Mark 9, 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, he said unto them, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. What's Jesus saying there? Well, let's say he was preaching to 100 or 200 people. He's saying not everybody in that audience is going to see death, taste of death, or is going to die till they've seen the kingdom of God come with power. In other words, the kingdom's going to come before everybody in this audience that I'm preaching to has died physically. Well, that, that means either the kingdom came back in the first century time frame, like Daniel 7 said it would, or there's some people alive today that are 2,000 years old. How do the pre-millennialists deal with this? Well, they don't deal with it. Instead, what they like to do is write books to try to have these sensational kind of things so they can sell books, and they ignore what the Bible says about the kingdom. And who's the king of the kingdom? And when the start of the kingdom is going to be? Why? Because they want to sell books. This clearly says the kingdom is going to start in the lifetime of some of those people back then that Jesus was preaching to. Like I said, either the kingdom started back then and the pre-millennialists are wrong and there's not going to be a kingdom after the second coming of Christ. Well, it couldn't be. Second Peter 3, 9 and 10 says there's going to be burned up at the second coming of Christ. Or there's some people that are alive today that are over 2,000 years old or about 2,000 years old. No, you know that's not true. The kingdom came during the lifetime of some of those people, just like Mark 9, 1 says, and just like Daniel 7 prophesied that it's when he's going to go to the ancient of days, meaning his ascension, not when he's leaving the ancient of days, the second coming of Christ. Is that clear? If it's not clear, perhaps we can talk later and talk more about that false theory of pre-millennialism. If you have a Bible question or comment, the lines are wide open. Any Bible question or comment is fair and game. 877-655-6755. The number to call is 877-655-6755. How about another Old Testament prophet, Malachi? Malachi 2.16 says, For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. For one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. And it talks about dealing treacherously with the wife of their youth. The Lord, God, hates putting away. He hates divorce. <laughs> to hear a lot of gospel preachers today, God doesn't hate divorce anymore. In the Old Testament, he hated divorce, Malachi 2.16. He still hates divorce. As a matter of fact, there's only one scriptural cause for divorce and remarriage, for divorce, period. Matthew 19.9 states that. And I say unto you, this is Jesus speaking, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So in the Old Testament law, God hated divorce, putting away. 
And in the New Testament law, Jesus is making it clear that God hates putting away. He only allows one scriptural exception. If my wife cheats on me sexually, I have the right to divorce her and remarry if I choose to. But if she doesn't cheat on me, I cannot divorce her for any other reason. If I do, I sin. And if I remarry after that, I commit adultery. And guess what? Adultery is a sexual sin. That means if I divorce Carol for, let's say, incompatibility, which is the most common cause for divorce in Alabama. Mary Betty. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 9, that's adultery. Every time I sleep with Betty, I'm committing adultery. I can't just say, well, I'm sorry and stay in the marriage because that's saying, I'm sorry, God, for committing adultery. But oh, by the way, I plan to commit adultery every weekend with my wife. <laughs> that's not repenting, not repenting at all. That'd be too like two gay men saying they repented of being married together, but they're going to stay in the marriage. No, if you're in an adulterous marriage, you have to get out of it. If you're in a second or third marriage that violates Matthew 19, 9, which is probably about 90% of the marriages out there, even in, even in the people in the churches, you have to get out of that marriage if you want to be right with God, because you cannot just say you're sorry all the while planning on staying in an adulterous relationship. I'm, God, I'm sorry I've committed adultery, but oh, by the way, I'm planning on committing it with my wife next weekend. You can't do that. <laughs> You have to terminate that marriage and seek reconciliation with your original spouse. Now, what I'm about to read in Mark 6 happened during while the Old Testament law was in effect. But let me read it to you because I think it illustrates well what two people have to do when they find themselves in a marriage that uh, is unscriptural, that violates the law that they're under. Here it is, John the Baptist confronting Herod. Well, let me give you the number again to call before I read that. 877-655-6755, if you have a Bible question or comment. The lines are wide open. Call me, 877-655-6755. So here's what Herod told Herod and Herodias. He said, for Herod himself had sent forth and laid upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, where he had married him, married her. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Herod and Herodias had divorced their spouses, according to secular history. Now they're married. John the Baptist, who speaks for God, of course, confronts them. And he says, it's not lawful for you to have her. Obviously saying, you got to terminate the marriage. You can't stay in the marriage. None of this, oh, I repent and stay in the marriage. No, it's not lawful for you to have her. You have to terminate the marriage. You have to get out of the marriage. Now, apply that same principle to what we read in Matthew 19.9. Jesus said again in Matthew 19.9, I'll read it again. Whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication, and this is New Testament law, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. So if I divorce Carol for any reason other than fornication, and I marry Betty, Jesus calls that an adulterous marriage. What do we learn from Mark 6? That it's not lawful for me to have Betty. I have to get rid of that wife, terminate that marriage, seek reconciliation with Carol. I mean, that's crystal clear, yet... I'm guessing 95% of the churches out there won't say anything about it. They're, they won't dare to preach the truth on this. They just allow people to stay in second and third marriages. Why? You know, John the Baptist was willing to stand for the truth on this, even though it lost his, he lost his head over it. But these preachers evidently are not willing to stand for the truth on this and tell people the truth that you got to get out of these marriages because they're afraid of losing a few members and maybe a little bit of contribution. What a piddling thing to be scared of. Omar from Colorado. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. 
yes, sir. I, I just happened to turn you on and uh, just caught the, the teaching you're talking about marriage. And, and, and as I understand it, and, um, and like I said, I, I have to take it, I guess, a little bit further. When Jesus in the book of Matthew, as I understand it, I've been studying more into the Hebrew and the Greek, the exception, like what, what you were just talking about right now, the exception rule for divorce uh, in the book of Matthew, since Matthew was, his main audience more was the Jewish people. People don't realize when Jesus gave that exception, he gave the exception for divorce during the Jewish betrothal, like when Joseph thought that Mary was cheating on him when they were, you know, so-called engaged, because that's what we're used to. That that terminology, we're used to that. And so during the Jewish engagement period, the Jews already call each other husband and wife. They don't call each other fiancé like we do here in America. Um, so he gave the exception of fornication because fornication obviously is sex before marriage, but he was speaking towards the Jewish betrothal. That's why in the book of Mark, who was geared more towards the Gentiles, he doesn't give the exception at all. And so once you're married, uh, and you actually hit on this, once you're so married. So Omar, Omar, a, Omar, let me, let me yes, talk a little bit. So in Matthew okay. 19, 9, it says nothing about the Jewish betrothal. It says, whoever shall put away his wife, divorce his wife, Except it be for fornication and shall marry another. Marry another implies they've been married to the first one. So it's the second marriage. So there's nothing in here about the Jewish betrothal. It just says whosoever. So that implies, if that applies to us today. If I divorce my wife for any reason other than fornication and marry another, I commit adultery. So we don't need to add stuff in there. Just accept Jesus for what exactly what he says. I'm married to Carol. If I divorce her for any reason other than other than fornication and marry another, I commit adultery. That's what Jesus said. All that other stuff he's, that you mentioned, Omar, love you, respect you, but everything else you said to try to change that is not in the verse. Nothing oh, about well, the Jewish betrothal or anything like that. You just need to accept what the verse says, just like it reads. Yeah, we no, need to no, do that. We need to do that on every right. subject. Right, right. I understand that. And, uh, but like I said, man, there's, like I said, Matthew, like I said, was, is, as I understand it, um, was his main audience was the Jewish people. And so that's what I'm trying to break right. down. Because so Omar, Omar, Omar. So really, that's another thing you're adding in there. His audience is not necessarily just the Jewish audience. Remember, this Matthew 19.9 was written many decades after Christianity started, two or three decades after Christianity started. So who's the audience in Matthew 19.9? It was written and circulated among the Christians. So it, there's nothing in there that says his audience was the Jewish audience. That's what somebody made up, you know. So he's maybe talking to some Jews right there, but suppose I was talking to a group of black people. Would that mean that what I was saying didn't apply to white people? If I told blacks and black people, Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That, does that mean white people don't have to believe and be baptized to be saved? No, it doesn't mean that at all. 
It just so happens I was talking to some black people or some white people. It wouldn't, wouldn't change anything about the other race. So yeah, Jesus was speaking to some Jews probably there when he was talking, but actually Matthew 19, 9 was written many decades after that. So it applies to whosoever, whoever puts away his wife, except it be for fornication and she'll marry another committed adultery. That's the truth of it. And we need to accept it just like it says. One other thing, Daniel 9, 4, and I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. So here's something else we can learn from the Old Testament prophets. We have to keep God's commandments. Back then, they had to keep God's Old Testament commandments. We have to keep God's New Testament commandments. You find the same thing in Matthew 7, 21, Revelation 2, 4, 22, 14, Hebrews 5, 9. All kinds of New Testament passages teaching we have to obey Christ to be saved. If you want a free one-hour phone Bible study with me, call or text me at 256-682-9753.